0: Welcome to the Education of a Financial Planner, where we look at the major concepts in financial planning through the lens of two quant investors who are learning the ropes of the planning process and how to help clients achieve their long-term goals. Learn along with us as experienced financial planner Matt Ziegler helps us understand the most important financial planning concepts that impact all of us and how we can apply them to achieve the best outcomes in our financial lives. In each episode, we will work through one major financial planning concept from the ground up and learn how we can apply it in the real world. From retirement to college savings, to taxes, to estate planning, we will cover a wide range of topics that apply to each of our everyday lives. We hope you will join us in our learning journey. Justin Carpino and Jack Forehand are principals at Lydia Capital Management. Matt Ziegler is managing director at Sunpoint Investments. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Lydia Capital or Sunpoint Investments. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Lydia Capital or Sunpoint Investments. All right, guys. Today we're going to talk about factor investing and uh, specifically, Matt, how you use factor strategies for your clients. We also build and run investment strategies um, using investment factors and different quantitative criteria. But we want to kind of get at how a financial planner uses and thinks about factor investing um, when building client portfolios. And investment strategies, and one of the things we kind of got connected through a mutual friend, Wes Gray, Alpha Architect, who also runs Factor ETFs, factor-based ETFs and portfolios, and that was sort of a common, I guess, philosophy between Matt, what you do for your clients, and what we do here at Validia Capital. And so we had that that similar interest, I guess, and similar, I guess, undertone with how we about building and managing clients' money and portfolios. And so, you know, we just thought we'd have a discussion around factors um, in the future. We might flip it around and have Matt maybe ask us about the various things that we do with investment factors. But today, we're going to talk about how Matt thinks about this stuff. And um, so, yeah, I mean, let's just start, Matt, with, like when, you, when a client comes to you and, you know, you're actually managing their investment strategies and investment dollars and capital, how do you view the difference between... You know, an index-based approach and a factor-based approach, and maybe just let's discuss how you kind of think about it at a, at a high level.
1: Let's let's step one step back because part of why I love you guys and part of why I love the the educational content that you have at with Validia Capital on the website and the excess returns feed is just just defini- definitionally because factors are kind of like. There's so much more than just the adjectives for how we describe why returns work and why portfolios get built the way they do. So I'm curious for you first. Definition of factor, like I'm a college kid and I ask you, what the hell is a factor? What do you say?
2: You're, you're going to make us break out the four Ps here, aren't you? <laughs> I can never remember how many Ps there are, <laughs> but uh, you, can remix, five, you can remix the Ps. And there's I an there's I in four... there too, I think. Yeah, right. That's what it is. It's like four Ps and an I or something. So- We'll see what we can do. And Justin can, Justin can chip in if I can't do them all. But, uh, you know, one is it has to be persistent, which it has to work across time over, over long periods of time. The other is a factor has to be pervasive, um, which means I, I think that also that encompasses it has to work across asset classes, but it also has to work across geographies, I believe. I believe those are both in the same P. But basically, you want to, you want to see that it works over the long term. You want to see that it doesn't just work in one area. You want to see that it works regardless of how you define it. So, you know, if value investing only worked with the P.E. ratio, but didn't work in any other case, like it wouldn't be a very strong factor. And then the last one I think is it wants to be it should be intuitive, which means, you know, it should make some sort of sense. Like if I'm telling you, like something about butter production in Bangladesh is going to drive, you know, stock returns in the United States, you you probably should tell me that that's that's a terrible factor and it doesn't make much sense. Um, Interestingly enough, like some of the getting outside of what we do, like some of the, the renaissances of the world don't actually follow that last one. They don't really care the, the the short-term traders that aren't using like long-term factors. They don't really care whether it's intuitive. They actually like it better when it's not because they don't think other people are going to find it. But like in the world we live in, where it's like long-term factors, like that that is important. You want to have some sort of logic to why it works. Otherwise, you don't how how can you have confidence it's going to continue working.
0: And the other the other thing is that the you know factor investing should give you some premium uh, over time. Um, you know you're basically trying to harvest some type of Risk, whether it's behavioral based or uh, risk-based es- explanation as to why the factor should work, um, and then the other thing, just to add onto Jack's comments, the I think robustness is in there, and I and I believe what that is is, is you know if you're thinking about like the value factor, you know whether you use the PE ratio, the price to cash, oh the price to book, you know you should be able to use uh, a different different types of ratios or metrics to get at the value factor. Now there's different ways that people do that. So a lot of people use price to book actually in the investment world, but you can use like a value composite um, or other different types of value factors to try to get at that value factor.
1: So say this to me, and this is probably will eventually, this this should turn into an episode where I just get to ask you questions about this stuff. The, I always think of factors. So it's the cross section of returns and we're kind of looking for the patterns In the errors and the patterns that emerge from the errors, if they, if they repeat, they're more than just like a fluke. And if we know they're more than just a fluke, there's something interesting. Do you know, um, do you remember the story about, I think this is a Michael Mobison story about the, the, the Powerball. So like normally there's only like a few second place winners in the Powerball where they got, is it all the, all the right numbers, but out of order. Or you got like all the numbers, but one still in order. Do you know what I'm talking about?
2: I've never played the Powerball. I don't know, Justin, do you? So
1: whatever, whatever it is, because we've already just demonstrated mm. that apparently none of us play Powerball, <laughs> which is a big part of what you need to know for financial planning. Mm. Um, so, so normally there's like only a few people who ever get second place in these, these lotteries. So it's in New York or whatever. And one year, like over a hundred, so there's supposed to be like a few people get the second place thing. Literally over a hundred people get the second place thing, and they're like, "What the hell happened? That all these people ended up in second place." Do Do you know this story about the second place lottery winners? Does this ring a bell? Like, what factor got exploited that um will never work again? But do you know this?
0: I do not know. I'm trying to think what what weird
1: thing would cause a bunch of people to get second place in like a big lottery.
0: So well, they all chose they all chose the they all chose some type of they all got second place that means they all had the same numbers and the same it. numbers would be due to some type of anniversary or date or something like that that was sort of in people's minds that they were thinking of that's what I, just a, I guess all
1: right so the the key to this mystery is the factory who printed the fortune fortune cookie fortunes had an error and printed the same lucky number on like all these fortune cookies okay and all the people in this certain area all played those numbers on the ticket and that's how they had this like outlandish like statistically odds tipping thing for all these second place winners so so i bring this up because like like factors the the errors exist in the cross-section of returns but if we can uncover them and figure out if they're more than a one-off and if they're actually like repeatable I think it's one of the most intre- interesting ways to like both be introduced to and study this financial stuff uh, any nitpicking you would give me on that and then
2: no Justin, no I, got I think that's the right question yeah <laughs> you know yeah if you go back to CAPM, you know we're trying to explain stock returns and you know when you had the one variable or the one risk factor trying to explain stock returns like it didn't do a very good job and so like over time you know, with Fama and French and the other research, we found like these other risk factors that, you know, we were able to explain more of stock, more of the stock returns. And we have, say, five factors in there than we had the one. So yeah, I mean, that is kind of the derivation of these factors. And for guys like, uh, you know, uh, Fama, who believe that these factors are purely risk-based and they don't believe in the behavioral explanation. I mean, that's everything, you know, that, that risk side of it. But, you know, a, a lot of people, particularly with momentum and other factors, you know, believe in the behavioral side too. And it's not just a risk-based thing.
0: And And I, and I think over the last 20 years, you know, you've had, a lot of research come on the scene with the evidence of factor investing, but you've also had it be productized in different ETFs in different ways. You can get very broad exposure, which we'll talk about this a little bit, but you can get very broad factor exposure Own like a, a small cap value fund with hundreds and hundreds of stocks. Or in some cases, you can get, you know, much more concentrated value exposure or, or other factor exposure. And so, you know, there's pretty much like, multiple ETFs for each different factor that's out there and, you know, various different types of slices, whether it's concentrated or more diversified. And, and so, so Matt kind of kicking it back to you in terms of how to my initial question, when you think about sort of indexing passive investing versus factor investing for your clients, you know, how do you sort of start to frame up that discussion?
1: It starts with excess returns, not just the YouTube channel. Um, but, but really it starts with expected returns and it starts with uh, my way of thinking about this is it's, it's all about calling AAA and not just for blown tires, but definitely for blown tires, because when we're talking about active and passive, we're really talking about some understanding of average and in, tri- in AAA, we have three A's average is in the middle. The two sides of AAA here are awful and awesome. And so you can have an average outcome, you can have an awful outcome, you can have an awesome outcome. When we're doing things and looking at expected returns, and we're looking for what can happen, the beautiful thing, and Vanguard, little, little known company, built a little bit of a business on this, just having average outcomes, meaning you've taken some element of awesome on the table in any given calendar year, if you just own the S&P 500 ETF, you're not going to underperform or outperform. So you've taken awesome off the table, but you've also chopped awful awful off the table. And that's a really big deal because we know behaviorally, a lot of people will shoot themselves in the foot and they'll say, I don't want average, but they end up with awful. They think they're going to get awesome because they buy some product or they do some stupid thing, but they end up with awful and that's a really big problem. The behavior gap, it gets identified by all sorts of fancy terms. But when we're thinking about this and we're thinking about expected returns, we're looking at what are things that still cut off enough of awful, or if we drift into awful, it won't be terribly awful it'll only be modestly awful, but we have a shot at getting uh, awesome. And that brings up the whole skill and luck idea, which is how do we be skillful? Just like a factor. It has to be robust. It has to be repeatable. It has to be all those words that start with P that I can never remember. And I think about this and I think about, uh, I was, I was a, I was a failed middle school basketballer. So random question for you guys about repeatable processes, were you like, I mean, Justin, I assume for you you were you were like four years old hitting free throws, like just like one-handed, no problems.
0: Uh I I wasn't a huge basketball player, but certainly a, uh, definitely repeatable with you know, running and just yeah, staying staying fit and putting in the work.
1: So I have this this distinct memory slash emotional scar of So I could not, I could make a free throw, but I could only make a free throw like by jumping. And by middle school, you're actually like playing more than just like with your dad at at the local court. And you're playing like, not just in the rec league, but you're playing for your school and stuff. And so the middle school coach would have us like shoot foul shots at the end. And we had to like make a certain number of foul shots before practice was over. Now, the big upper body strength that I have would not allow my weak little baby arms to project the ball. all the way to that thing without jumping and sometimes crossing the foul line and whatever else. And so it's this like, it's this idea that I was really, really bad at something. And, uh, you had to persist. You had to figure out what the good process was to like build up that strength. And honestly, the good process was get a few years older (laughs) (laughs) until I was able to actually like make that free throw in the basic process style and whatever else to do it. And so I bring this up because like to get the average result, not the awful result or awful experience of just not being able to do something, we have to have a process in place that we know is good, that we know is encourageable. It was my coach still saying, practice doesn't end until you make these free throws. And so even though I sucked at it, figuring out how to do it until I got good enough to be able to do it on an average basis was a really important part. And so when we're talking to clients about the active, passive mix or what products or what approaches to use. It's understanding what are you good at? Like, do you have the arms to make free throws or do you need a couple more years? Do you have the ability to take the risk? Are you willing to accept an awful outcome in in exchange for a process that potentially gives you an awesome outcome? And are we doing anything where maybe you don't need either? We can cut both tails off and just go straight down the middle on the thing and uh, and everybody's happy. So it's, a critical part of the conversation. Active and passive is a mix for every individual.
2: It's interesting because that, that awesome and awful thing, it actually, it, it explains pretty well the way I think about factor investing because you know, if I've got a, at least if I'm going to be active, if I've got a choice between you know, hire a stock picker or use factor strategy, to me, I've got a better chance of achieving awesome with something that's proven, that's systematic, that works over a long period of time, and I have a less chance of getting awful. If you look at like the long-term results on like active managers, it's something like what 90% of them underperform the market. You know, I feel like you have bet if you're going to be active. And then like you said, not everybody should be active. If you're going to be active, I feel like factor investing gives you a better chance in that framework of avoiding the awful and getting the awesome.
1: I think the AAA thing and just understanding that's what you're aiming for and why and understanding if you have a tolerance for accepting awful because look at the last, you know, 12 years until like last year or whatever you know, value kind of sucked for a while there. So anybody who puts on that value hat, you had a rough go. You were Matt in seventh grade trying to hit free throws. Like you just, it just wasn't working.
2: How do you think about like, do you use factors for most clients? There are most clients indexed? Like, if you think about like the breakdown of your clients, like how would you think about that in terms of like active strategies versus, you know, index type strategies?
1: So a huge part of this, and this goes back to the whole like expected returns. So expected returns means we're thinking of units of risk. If we're thinking of units of risk, we're thinking about units of where we're going to take active risk and where we're not. We're thinking about if you proactively take risks to be different from average, the point you just made, what's your tolerance for how much awful versus how much awesome you're taking on? Uh, And then cost is obviously a factor, too. You can have really high-priced active management that can be worth it, or it can be counterproductive to what your goals are. And so maybe stupid idea, but a stupid idea that's just been in my head forever is When you think about it on the awful, average, awesome, AAA-like continuum, if you will, a big part of what we're talking about here is just tracking error. And so when we're looking at clients and modeling out goals, we're trying to model out with them behaviorally what amount of tracking error are they willing to put up with so long as it's something they still believe in. And then that means we can weight these things. And so like a stupid, simple math thing is if you know you need a certain return, and you know you need that certain return to get you to certain goals in the future, or you think you do probabilistically, however you're waiting it out, you can start to say, if I build a portfolio that's totally passive, does it get me there? And then you can start to say, well, if I'm going to charge this person, or if this person's reaching for more, or if we believe something gives us a better outcome, how much active do we have to add at what odds, it's a math equation, to actually start to tilt that scale. And what we see for a lot of people is Somewhere between like a third to two-thirds of something active weighted against a third to two-thirds of passive tends to get the balance where you start to go by having some amount of passive in almost every portfolio, that average anchor is really big because that average anchor minimizes the risk of awful and negative periods. And I would say almost pretty much all clients, it's the way we at some point think about portfolio construction is through the lens of... How do we deconstruct these factors across the managers we use and when we choose to be active versus we're happy just accepting our betas?
0: When you're using these factor based strategies and portfolios, do you tend to, are you using ones that are more diversified or do you sometimes find yourself wading into portfolios that are a little bit more concentrated? I mean, again, it probably depends on the the risk and return objectives. I get it of the client, but you know, generally speaking, can you just kind of explain the thought process there?
1: Yeah. So the multi-factor approach is the way that the ultimate portfolio ends up existing. Cause it's always a, it's return stacking and the Corey Hofstein parlance, or it's thinking about like, which betas are we combining? And then how are they related? How are they correlated with each other? What's the, like the risk consequences of like doing this mix? So Typically, when we're looking at a, when we're looking at products and like there's all those multi-factor ETFs that exist, I think you just have to sort of understand if I'm using just one product for a whole portfolio, then maybe a multi-factor type thing makes a lot of sense. Maybe it's something that emphasizes value, quality, and momentum, for example. And on a total portfolio, if that gets me to my right return profile against my goals, then fine, you can solve it for one product that tends to be rare in the clients we work with. We don't often just have like a, um, a never a single factor approach. And very rarely do we use, would we ever, like we're never gonna recommend one product to solve something because there's always the chance that you're wrong and then you're betting on that awful, out, or the chance of that awful outcome is non-zero and maybe, maybe exaggerated. So with products, we tend to mix and match, but we try to mix and match thoughtfully to say, what's giving us a reasonable expectation above the beta above the average result where the risk of awful is minimized and the risk of awesome is maximized by, by our view and our understanding. And that also shows up in different places. And this goes into, I mean, how do you guys think about uh, whether it's like, does the value factor work better in small caps versus in large caps? For example, you guys must wrestle with some of this stuff. How do you think about it?
2: Yeah, I, mean, I think, you know, that's actually something that's been like a subject of debate recently because uh, there was an Alpha Architect article that sort of challenged that idea that, uh, you know, factors work better like in small caps. I mean, I think the size factor in general is pretty questionable, but like most people have always thought that the, the factors themselves work better like in the small cap space. And I think, we you know, we've seen that in artwork that they, they probably do. But like th- there was a very good article recently that sort of challenged that. And, you know, that's one of the challenges of factor investing. And I'm sure it's a challenge for you looking from the outside as much as it is for us on the inside is like, you don't know like what's gonna happen going forward. So there's always gonna be a lot of research coming in a lot of different directions when you use factors. And so go, going back to, to your original point about multi-factor, I mean, I think that's probably my biggest lesson is like if all this stuff, you know, we know a lot of it has worked over the long term. We know there's gonna be a lot of research going in a lot of different directions. Like if I could teach myself something when I started, it would be spread your bets. It would be like, don't just be the value guy, but momentum has just as strong evidence to support it as value does. And, you know, do factors work better in small caps? You know, maybe they maybe, maybe they do, maybe they don't, but don't put all your eggs in that basket that they do. You know, spread it out a little bit. And, and I think that's the, you know, factors are all about like sort of this term on average. You know, they work on average across a group of stocks. And so I think you want to spread your bets as much as you can when you use factor investing. Obviously, you know, we, we are believers in focused factor investing, but that, yeah. that doesn't mean that you have to be focused in terms of one factor. You know, focused means we might try to get a bigger premium by having less stocks. But within that, we're still going to try to have a bunch of different bets we're making, you know, as opposed to making single bets.
0: And by the way, not to make this a anything like an advertisement for Validia, but what you can do on our research site, because some of that's comments got me thinking, you can type in any of these factor ETFs, and you can see the factor exposure of the underlying holdings. So, you know, if you're an investor out there and you're looking at these various factor ETFs, but you really want to know, like, it does this ETF give me exposure, the best exposure to the factor. You can type in the ticker symbol, see the factor exposure of the ETF, or you can even screen for the ETFs that have the highest degree of factor exposure. And if someone wants to go to Validia and send me the, there's a free part of the site that you can see this, send me three tickers from uh, the ETFs with the most value exposure, I'll give you a free account to the site.
2: Just to uh, cool. just a touch on that, <laughs> that, that factor exposure thing, you know, whether, whether someone gets factor exposure, like looks at those, our factor tool or somebody else's, like what's really interesting about factor exposures is it, it sort of gives you an idea of what you're getting for your money. So, you know, what you want to avoid in factor investing is the closet indexing factor fund that's charging a high fee. And so that, that's basically what those types of tools help you do is like, I'm buying like this, fo- this value fund. Am I actually getting exposure to value? Or am I getting something that you just has a little bit more value than the market, but I'm paying a high fee to get? It? And so those types of tools, whether it's ours or somebody else, they they're, they're give you a good indication of kind of what you're getting for the fee you're paying, and just make sure you understand that. Like I understand I'm getting a lot of exposure to value, or I understand I'm getting a little bit of exposure to value.
1: That whole better than average on average thing is one of the most interesting things, and in, from a portfolio construction standpoint, especially when trying to meet client goals it's a really big deal because it determines like which where you are going to take those risks and not and risk being awful the closet indexing stuff is very real and a lot of those multi-factor portfolios like they give you they give you suboptimal market exposure in many cases because it's you know it's just the design is flawed
2: one of the things i've learned from you matt like do, doing all these episodes is this whole idea that whatever we're doing in investing we should tie it somehow to like our purpose our purpose in life, our purpose in our portfolio, what we're trying to achieve. And so I'm just wondering, how do you think about factor investing in that context? Like, how do you think about aligning that with like, a client's purpose?
1: The weird thing is I feel like I came into this professionally, the whole like reading up and learning about factors. I've got all of Wes's books on the shelf behind me. I've got O'Shaughnessy's book. I've got all the Greenblatt books back there. And they tie so deeply to how different people are wired. So I think it's, and even just like take like greenblatt for example and so when he does like the original magic formula thing right do you remember who he wrote that that little book for on the original magic formula
0: it was his kids wasn't it
1: yeah he wanted his daughters to like be like dad does value investing (laughs) and i just want i want you to understand buy good stuff cheap right and and he's explaining it through like the the gum store versus the uh the everything broccoli store or whatever right and just being like, yeah, nobody wants to shop at everything broccoli, but everybody wants to buy the, the gum store. But there's like a good price and a bad price for each. And it's got to be the thing you can stick to. And that's the whole thing. So what I love is he's like systematic value works. And I'm going to try to pass this on to my daughters. And it's also informed by like, I forget, in one of the books, he's got a story about like his wife is talking about somewhere where she's like buying clothes and he figures out basically how to like reverse engineer it and like it fits in the magic formula and realize it's good investment against the growth and stuff. So there's, there's how to build a systematic portfolio and like the updated Warren Buffett type thing that he's famous for. But then you also have, have to have, um, uh, is it, you can be a stock market genius, which is like the worst titled book ever, but also he he
0: He says that too. (laughs) Oh,
1: horrible. (laughs) Like one of those books you're like I'm embarrassed to have this on my shelf, but still one of my absolute favorite investment books that's up there with, with reminiscences of a stock operator and some of the others in my mind and in my heart, because that's the first book that really said, if you understand these factors and how they paint together, here's the ways you can run screens to look for ideas. And then the genius of his original fund, 85 to 95 or whenever they put up those like outstanding record, that track record was like concentrated bets. Cause he was running this super small portfolio to, take these kind of like buy good stuff cheap and do it in a wild way. And the the, the warrant stuff and um, the, the leaps. I got so much out of that book and still think about that book all the time because that's the more entrepreneurial side. So we think about goals and we go back to what you just said about goals and purpose. Portfolio construction should be a reflection of the person across the table from you and reflect their values and their purposes in some way so that when stuff is hitting, when the proverbial stuff is hitting the fan, do they understand the portfolio construction process that keeps them on track for achieving their goals? Because we all can say invest for the long run, stocks for the long run, whatever it is. There's a reason we're not just stuffing this in a coffee can and burying it in the backyard. But that reason has to be something that we don't abandon. So what I've found is professionally, I've found, but we we do this at some point, but personal thing here is that business owner clients, people who are more entrepreneurial minded and depending where they are in that stack, they are people who probably want to have or own either managers where there's a strong look through to the individual security positions or they want to own a basket of individual securities where they might be willing to take on more risk. Because the world can be ending, but they can look and see, and I'm making something up because there's an iPhone in front of me. They can say, I'm going to own Apple because even when the world is ending, I know like I have Apple and my kids have Apple and whatever else. And matching up the portfolio construction to the factors that reflect their own inherent wiring, their own inherent why, makes a huge difference in keeping people on track for that plan. What better way to explain this stuff then, with the language of factors. Doesn't mean we have to walk the clients through it. I don't know how much Joel Greenblatt beyond that book walked his daughters through You Can Be a Stock Market Genius. But there's a lot of powerful stuff for us as the allocators and investors who people hire for help to say we understand this deeply and we're gonna help build a portfolio around your purpose and not doing something dumb when the world turns against you when you can't hit those free throws in seventh grade, when you win a lottery all of a sudden, but we have to break the news, this was just luck.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. Like That's something we deal with a lot too, because you have this idea of you know you want to invest people in the factors they believe in the most. You know, If someone comes to us and they're a big believer in value, you might want to have more exposure to value for them. But there's the flip side, which is what we talked about before, which is the fact that value is going to have really, really long periods of struggle. And so a lot of times you want to push those people like, all right, let's couple this with something else. Because, you know, as much as you believe in value, you know, you may not believe it, leave it to the point that you're going to want to struggle over 15 years when it's not working. So it's an interesting balance, like, you know, trying to figure out like what someone believes in, but also using kind of the data to say, all right, you know, we don't want to go too far towards what you believe in because we want to we want to use what kind of will give you a smoother ride over time.
1: Absolutely. There's there's different flavors of this. And as we all know, it all boils back down to that behavior gap. If you are expecting awesome, and you're consistently getting awful, at what point do you throw in the towel? And most people who are ever going to reach for awesome have a really hard time just taking average. That's why we have jobs.
2: We did a, you joined us for an interview on excess returns we did with Mathieu Pellerin of uh, of DFA, where we kind of talked about this idea of using factor investing like in a retirement portfolio. And one of the things he showed in his research is, you know, if you do use these factors, if you use them sort of in a diversified way, you get a little bit of an excess return, you can support higher withdrawal rates. And I'm just wondering, how do you think about that? And how do you think about this balance between using something like this that might be able to boost your returns and, and like withdrawal rates for... Shout
1: out to Matthew and still the best pocket square in the history of excess returns. I don't know. Did anybody top <laughs> that the pocket square? No. He- Respect the pocket square game. <laughs> uh, so as a rule... Your behavior is the only thing that can increase your withdrawal rates or your sustainable withdrawal rate. If we want to define that as factors, yeah, absolutely, I agree with that. Factors can be used to increase your sustainable withdrawal rate because your behavior is the thing that can increase your sustainable withdrawal rate. That means if you go through an awful period, you may have to adjust based on that to sustain longer. And if you go through an awesome period, you may have to adjust or you may choose to adjust Uh, to reflect the sustainability of that withdrawal rate. I think it's really important that we, and I know these aren't aren't his words, although it sounds very French and poetic, to say that factors aren't cute or cuddly. (laughs) They're just quantifiable. We can't fall in love with them. They're not some value is adorable, quality is adorable, but let's be honest. At the end of the day, we just quantified something that explains a pattern in the errors on these market returns. So, Average and awesome are very good, respectively. Awful is not good. We're trying to avoid awful. And if we avoid awful, then we get the sustainable withdrawal rate. And if we have a sustainable withdrawal rate that is made better through the understanding of factors, great. Does it mean you can increase it as a rule? Would the diehard value guy get to take out 6% a year then instead of 4% a year? Maybe works great in hindsight in the regression analysis. But... On a forward-looking basis, it's it's all going to come down to behavior, and behavior is always going to come down to adaptability to survive.
2: Yeah, getting to that point of behavior, if you're going to do it, you've got to do it in a very diversified way. I would think like using a very aggressive, like focused factor strategy to try to increase withdrawal rates would be a terrible, you know, idea. I mean, obviously you're going to have sequence risk issues around that. You're going to have long periods of underperformance. You're going to have behavioral issues. Like I, I like what he did in the paper because if you're going to do it, you probably want to do slight tilts. You probably want to make something people can stick with that are not going to have problems around retirement with.
1: That's to me, that's the biggest takeaway from his work. That's that's a huge part, too, from Peter Mladina's work. Tilts are really, really powerful because diversified tilts mean instead of just so this is the biggest pitch for like not just throwing everything in Vanguard that I know, (laughs) which is when you tilt, you invite the tracking error that allows first awful and awesome. And when you do that and you diversify your tilts to the point you just so eloquently made, then something, diversification means you always hate something you own. So you always have something that's doing awful. But diversification also means you can have the thing you tilted towards it's doing awesome. And so the reason the higher withdrawal rate can exist is because the diversified tilts allow for something to be doing awesome when other things are doing awful instead of everything just doing average. And that is a really, really powerful thing. That's why we diversify across asset classes. That's why we do alternative assets. We do alternative strategies because these tilts can be the thing that enable the cash flow to support all the needs we have on our calendars.
2: I'm wondering, you talked a little bit about, we've talked about these long periods of underperformance these factors can have. I'm wondering how do you think about dealing with that upfront with clients? Like if you're gonna put a client in a factor strategy, how do you figure out like whether they can withstand that? I mean, obviously we're using multi-factor, so we're trying to make them it be as diversified as we can. But we know even like a multi-factor portfolio can have these long periods where it doesn't work. Like what would you ask a client up front to try to get an idea of like, are they going to panic? Or are they going to do the wrong thing when that bad period comes?
1: The honest answer is when you're talking to clients, when we're talking to clients, so we don't get somebody, somebody's not inbound going, I love value, build me a value portfolio. People don't come to us with that question. They might know about it. They might have They know who Warren Buffett is, and they may or may not know about some of the other things, but they're not coming to us looking for a factor. They're not looking for an answer on those terms most of the time. So for us, what it really comes down to is dissecting the purpose and the belief set that they're supposed to be putting this money to work and not in a coffee can in the backyard. We're reverse engineering then away from, okay, if you believe you should be doing something more than just hiding this. What do we need to solve for on from a planning perspective first for what this money is supposed to do? Are you consuming it? Are you gifting it? And then over what time horizon and then what risks are acceptable over that time horizon on on different levels of of risk? Sorry, I'm overusing that word. But this idea that we now have to understand your your plan, we have to understand your goals and objectives. We have to understand your desire to consume or gift this money over various horizons under various scenarios and then which things feel comfortable to you. So usually not gonna ask the question about how comfortable are you with like this period of underperformance. That's a reality we know as practitioners, but we are gonna ask the question of, are you looking at the account? Does it help you when you see an individual security? Some people, like I said, they think in terms of, they think in terms of stocks and it's hard to think about in terms of funds. there are narrowly expressed things. It might be an ETF that just focuses on a sector or just focuses on a type of strategy. There could be a private investment that only focuses on direct rail car investments that uh, ship things to Northern Canada or something. Those are the pieces of, great, somebody has a brain that's wired to understand things a certain way. It's our job to understand their goals and objectives, build a portfolio that makes some at least intuitive sense to them, has academically and empirically demonstrable like positive effects if they'll stick to the strategy over the long term and that we can talk to that at multiple levels because the other reality too is how many times do you talk to somebody where one person is here and the spouse is here or one spouse is here the other's up here and they have a child who's the trustee on the family foundation and they're way over here you have to be able to think through this complicated thing in a way where you can communicate with all three of them with one cogent strategy. And that's way more than value is going to underperform for a while.
2: That just got me curious. Like how much do you typically get in the, if you're using a factor portfolio for clients, like how, how high level do you keep it and how much do you get in the weeds? Like I assume you're not sitting there and telling the client, you know, this fund I'm using uses a five factor composite to build their value approach or whatever. I assume you're not getting to those with that level of detail. because clients just don't care, but what would you, how how much would you share with them about like, here's this value fund we're using?
1: Uh, always, 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 always. You give the opportunity for them to ask the questions on how deep they want to go to understanding these things. Most of the time, there is a story or a narrative that better explains the math of what you just said than the actual math of what it is. Now, if somebody wants to get into that, We can break it out and we have a whole strategy for how we think about risk, how we think about risk mitigation, how we think about how that teeters into different areas and we figure out all the tilts and we build portfolios this way. At some point, we go very, very in depth into this process and then how to do it with both public and private investments. But to the extent that somebody doesn't have a full, now if a family office has a full investment committee who wants to dive through all this stuff and we're doing all the CIO type stuff for them, great then we're probably explaining some of the stuff and why we're doing it. But for most people, what they want to understand is the high level reflection of who they are in this thing. So just like they can weather tough times with their family, how is the portfolio weathering tough times? And what are we doing to make those shifts? If the client is concerned about what they see on TV or hear about inflation and things like that, we need to be able to say, inside of the portfolio, here's the factors that correlate with owning real assets that have a positive relationship with inflation in normal environments. And this is why this ends up here, whether we're talking about a individual stock or a type of equity fund or whatever it may be. And that's the part that matters. How do we connect those values? And then as professionals, we have to be able to go deep. It's my doctor When he says you should take this like ibuprofen, I don't need the, whatever the medical school like dictionary name is with the 300 pages of negative side effects. I need the thing that explains it to me. And if I want to go deep on something with my doctor, I expect my doctor to go deep with me. And I view our profession as the same way. Give me the prescriptive advice. Tell me the right steps to take, guide me through it. But if I need to dive deep, I need you to go deep as, as deep as I can understand with me. And that's what we seek to do.
0: Okay, guys, I think that's a good overall discussion. We talked about what a factor is, how you define it, talked about active factor-based portfolios versus passive, how uh, people's goals and purpose can be aligned with factors. I think, Matt, your use of multi-factor investing and and sort of how you articulate different factor strategies to clients. So hopefully uh, you guys found this discussion valuable and useful, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. Hi, guys. This is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at @practicalquant. You can follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carbono and follow Matt on Twitter at, at Cultish Creative. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. Also, if you have any ideas for topics you'd like us to cover in the future, please email us at excessreturnspod at gmail.com. We would like this to be a listener-driven podcast and would appreciate any suggestions. Thank you.